uh, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Gracious Father, you are the God who speaks and everything you say is true and good and food for our souls. So Father, please help us now uh, to hear your word as it is, the word of the living God given for us. Uh, Please use me in my weakness to speak clearly, truthfully, helpfully as I should, uh, that you would be glorified in the preaching and hearing of your word. So Father, please now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight our rock and redeemer. Amen. Uh, Well, 2022 began yesterday, as it does every year and across the world, with fireworks. It's kind of the iconic way to start a new year. And I think it's deliberate, right, because the fireworks at midnight are meant to kind of excite us, fill us with anticipation of all the good fireworks that might come in the new year. It is the iconic way to do it. Fireworks on the Yarra, uh, or of course in Melbourne this year, you didn't get to go, you didn't get to see them, and unfortunately Sydney did it better, I'm told, but nonetheless, the fireworks were there. Iconic beginnings are deliberate to kind of capture and engage us, and we see this especially in movies. Think of the famous Forrest Gump sitting on the park bench with his briefcase and box of chocolates. Or perhaps the most familiar and iconic beginning to a movie there is, Star Wars. The familiar music, the scrolling text flying into the darkness. It's deliberate, right? It's so captivating. In fact, when I was watching uh, the release of a new Star Wars in the cinema a few years ago, the guy next to me, when that famous music began, just burst into tears with excitement at the new Star Wars movie. Iconic beginnings have a a particular way of capturing our emotions, filling us with excitement and anticipation, whether it's the simple things like the dimming of the lights in the cinema as the movie begins, or the roar of a crowd after the national anthem in the AFL grand final and the players go to their position, or perhaps more recently, the anticipation of the first ball of an Ashes series against England that either doesn't hit the pitch and goes to second slip, or perhaps more recently, bowls the England opener around his legs. Iconic beginnings capture and engage us, and though I know we are a Presbyterian church, I wonder if that's what happened to you as we read Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I didn't hear any gasping or cheering. No one fainted. No one seemed to be on the edge of their seat. No one even protested. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. These words might be familiar to most of us, unfamiliar to some, perhaps even underwhelming to you. Yet to Mark's first readers, they were hope-filled, wonderful, while also being controversial and confronting. But as we look uh, at these verses, and tonight we start a new series on Mark, as Clinton said, uh, it's helpful for us to get uh, familiar with this book. Uh, Mark, it's understood, is the first and the earliest gospel that was written down uh, and was probably used by and added to by both Matthew and Luke as they wrote their gospels. Mark, or as he's called in the New Testament, John Mark, uh, he was a companion of Barnabas and Paul on missionary trips in the book of Acts. And tradition tells us from the church father Papias, uh, writing in the early 2nd century, that Mark worked closely with the apostle Peter, perhaps as his interpreter or maybe his secretary. 
And so Mark's gospel is based on the eyewitness testimony of Peter, written uh, perhaps for those in Rome who were where he was when he wrote, and especially it seems maybe while persecution of Christians was growing in that area. It's the shortest of the four Gospels we have. It's fast-paced, moving quickly from scene to scene. You're going to hear the word immediately a lot over the next few weeks. And especially what Mark is good for is just giving us a big and clear picture of the greatness of Jesus. And what could be better for us as we begin a new year than to spend time being refreshed and again reminded of how great Jesus really is? Uh, verse 1 in, in Mark really is a banner or a title over the whole book. It tells us that Jesus is going to be the focus because the identity and mission of Jesus really is good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Firstly, Mark tells us that he is writing gospel or good news. It's the Greek word euangelion from which we get our word evangelism. It means to herald or proclaim good news. It was a very familiar word to Mark's first readers because it was used in Rome to describe an official proclamation of a victory or triumph. It was used for announcing the, the winning of a war or even the birth of a monarch. In fact, uh, Emperor Augustus, born in 29 BC, so before this, uh, it was written this of him. The birthday of God marked for the world the beginning of the gospel through his coming. And so Mark actually uses this word quite intentionally, deliberately. He is writing, he is announcing the gospel, real True, world-changing good news that needs to be heralded, needs to be heard in every place. Good news, not of a self-inflated and deluded political leader or rulers who deify themselves, but real good news of Jesus. And so hopefully you see verse 1 is actually very provocative, even treason when Mark writes it. But all that he's going to write will be to show us why this is the case. Real good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, having just come from Christmas, I hope you'll remember that the name Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, means the Lord saves. That's what his name means, and that's his mission. And Christ is not his surname, but a title or a role. The Christ or the Messiah, it means anointed one. This royal figure in the Old Testament, full of expectation and promise. The Christ was going to come and rule on God's behalf, to bring rescue for God's people, to bring justice to God's enemies. The Christ is not just a king, but the king. The king who would sit on David's throne and rule forever, bringing final peace. And Mark says Jesus is the Christ. He's also the son of God. Now, others like Adam or David or even Israel itself are called God's son in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the son. It speaks of his unique relationship to God, his unique status. For Jesus to be the son of God, it's an outright claim to be divine, that God is here. That's the good news. God is revealing himself, showing us what he's like, and especially through Jesus, calling us to himself. 
And these two titles, as Christ and Son of God, actually set up the entire structure of Mark's gospel. It breaks neatly into two halves. The first, in chapters 1 to 8, they ask the question, who is Jesus? And it climaxes in in chapter 8 with Peter's own confession that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And then the second half in chapters 9 to 16, well, they really ask, why did Jesus come? We know who he is, but why did he come? Climaxing with none other than a Roman guard confessing Jesus to be the Son of God as Jesus hangs on the cross in chapter 15. And so this verse, this opening verse, is a banner for the whole book. As Mark gives us the conclusion, he wants us to draw straight up. It's what he's going to show us. It's what he's going to seek to persuade us of through his gospel. Because who Jesus is and why he's come really is the good news we need to hear. And it's the good news we need to keep hearing. And so while for some Christians Mark might seem a bit basic, a bit fund, a bit straightforward, it's actually what we need to keep seeing Jesus clearly. Uh, in 1997, there was a, a very great Mr. Bean movie. It was a bit of a favourite of mine growing up. Anyone embarrassed enough to confess they've seen it? Great Mr. Bean. Ah, oh, look at you all. You, great movie, right? I can't remember exactly what's going on, but he travels to America and for some reason he ends up with the responsibility for this highly valued painting called Whistler's Mother. And while closely examining the picture, he sneezes on it right in the face. And of course, in true Mr. Bean fashion, he gets out his hanky seeking to rub it off only to smudge and ultimately destroy the picture. And in some brilliant Rowan Atkinson awkwardness, he panics and seeks to fix the painting by redrawing, repainting over the smudge. And the whole thing is so hilarious, right? Because his recreation is so out of touch with everything about the original. There it is for your enjoyment. But here's what you'll find, is that we actually do the exact same thing with our understanding and picture of Jesus. God's word gives us the clear and glorious picture of Jesus, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But over time, that picture gets distorted or tainted or just replaced by our own thinking or imagination. Unfortunately, we repaint Jesus as one who becomes preoccupied with our own comfort or pleasure, a version of Jesus who can be manipulated or just easily forgotten, one who never offends you, never challenges you, or a Jesus that can, that can be reduced to only having authority or involvement in certain parts of your life. Sadly, we have the natural ability to repaint Jesus as one who isn't glorious, as one who isn't worth more of our time or loyalty, perhaps even a version of Jesus that's just disappointing, perhaps even cruel or distant. And so coming back to Mark is so good for us. It's why God in his kindness actually has these gospels written down and preserved for us so we can see and savour Christ as he actually is, to keep the gospel on repeat and to have Mark refresh our minds and hearts with the greatness of Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. 
This opening section in verses 1 to 13, which really are a prologue to Mark's gospel, Mark gives us three scenes here to help us grasp the greatness of King Jesus before Jesus then begins his ministry in verse 14. Three lenses that we are to remember or to keep in mind about Jesus as we see his life and ministry unpacked in the chapters that follow. And as Mark announces the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God, in verses 2 to 8 he says, we need to know that the coming of King Jesus is not random, but what God promised, what God planned all along. Because it might surprise us, after verse 1, the focus seems to shift to John the Baptist. In verse 2, Mark quotes two Old Testament passages, the first from Malachi 3, the second from Isaiah 40 that Helen read for us. Uh, both which promise that there's going to be a, a forerunner, a messenger, a voice crying out in the wilderness, one who will come and prepare the way, prepare God's people for God himself to come to them. And Mark quotes these two different uh, Old Testament verses because they point to and are fulfilled in John the Baptist. In verse 4, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Even John's clothes, random they might appear, further this fulfillment picture. In verse 6, we're told he wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist which is really to make us think of Elijah. We've been, uh, we spent time in uh, the book of 2 Kings last year. Remember, he's the hairy prophet of Israel that was promised in Malachi, 4, uh, Malachi chapter 4, the last part of the Bible, Old Testament, that he would come, Elijah would come before the Lord himself appeared. And in Matthew 11, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah promise. And so do you see that Jesus is not some kind of first century revolutionary that struck a chord and captured the imagination of many. His coming, his work of salvation, it's the goal, it's the focus of all human history, just as God said. It's why when Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, they are according to the scriptures or 2 Corinthians 1 that all of God's promises have found their yes in Christ. In 2013 the Cambridge University published a book called Who's Bigger? Uh, It asked the question of who is the most influential figure in world history? They looked at Plato, Aristotle, Muhammad, even Elvis got a look in but their conclusion was that it was Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter from Galilee. But why is this the case? How did this happen? Is Jesus right place, right time? Just coincidence? Or was it because 700 years before Jesus even came, God promised in Isaiah chapter 9 that he would honour Galilee by raising up someone who would rule the world forever and that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God and Prince of Peace. Reflecting on this, uh, historian John Dixon says, how could this utterly implausible script that a man from unknown Galilee would rule the world, 
How could that be? How could it ever be imagined? How could it be stage managed to be true? Only by God. That's what Mark is saying has happened in Jesus. And I wonder as we start a new year, do you have that kind of confidence in the gospel? That it's good news, that's not just historically credible, but openly promised beforehand God's plan and purposes for the whole world that are good for us. Because for Mark's first readers, this would have still seemed pretty much unimaginable. Christianity was small, without any power or influence, and facing persecution. But we know more, we have seen more. Jesus is the good news that God had promised and planned. And so do you see that while John seems to be centre stage, the focus really still is on Jesus. Jesus' coming prepared by John is exactly what God promised would happen and John himself makes this clear that the focus is on Jesus in verse 7. He says, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Uh, It was a slave's job to remove the sandals and to wash the feet. A dirty and unthinkable job for a Jew. Yet John says he's not willing, that's not the issue. He's not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. The comparative greatness cannot be stressed enough by John. But none of that should surprise us as readers of Mark since the Old Testament promises that John fulfills in verses 2 and 3, they say he is preparing the way for none other than God himself. God who's taken on flesh in Jesus. We heard it in the reading, Isaiah 40. The comfort for God's people is, here is your God. For God alone can baptize with the Holy Spirit. In verse, in verse 8, John says, you know, he can baptize people with water. He can give them a symbol. He can splash around for a while. But Jesus brings the real deal, the inward change by the Spirit. And so John prepares the way by pointing to the greatness of Jesus and by baptizing. But do you notice how strange that is? In essence, John is saying, God himself is coming after me. I'm here to get you ready, and the thing that you need to do is have a bath. You need to be washed. In verse 4, he preaches a a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know they say that everywhere the queen goes, she smells fresh paint as people scramble to impress her with their touched-up places. Yet everywhere God goes... He finds people who reject him, ignore him and replace him. He's saying you need to get ready to meet God himself by acknowledging that you are not good, that you don't give God the love, the loyalty, the obedience that he deserves. That's why they come, verse 5, confessing their sins. But did you notice the response to John? They flood to him. All Judea, all Jerusalem come and are baptised. In fact, the first century Jewish historian, non-Christian Josephus, he speaks of how influential John was on the Jews at this time. Because although John's message is confronting, it's actually still good news. 
because they confess their sins and they are baptised. They receive the symbol of the promise that they'll be washed and cleansed by God, which is exactly what Jesus comes to do, which is what we see in the next two scenes. As Mark gives us, these lenses to see Jesus through for the rest of the gospel. Jesus arrives, he's on the scene, and he gets baptised, and he goes into the wilderness. Now, if, uh, if you were reading along, hopefully you noticed how strange they sound, right? It's as if we move from history to fantasy. And if you're a Christian that's read the gospels many times, perhaps uh, you might not realise how strange they actually are. Heaven splits open. What did that look like? A voice comes from heaven. What did that sound like? The spirit descends as a bird for some reason and then Satan himself shows up. It's pretty weird. But at this point, we really need to ask, do these verses, does what happened in these two scenes match the significance of what John promised was coming? Do they live up to the expectation that after the messenger who prepares the way, God himself is going to show up? And I think we have to say, yes, right, the events are weird because they're supernatural and extraordinary. The promised king arrives just as John said he would. And then these two scenes, they work together to show us both the identity and the mission of Jesus, that he is the king that we all desperately need jesus shows up verse 9 comes from nazareth he's baptized by john and as he comes out of the water verse 10 we're told that heaven itself is torn or split open now mark uses that same word that idea of tearing or splitting again in chapter 15 of the temple curtain when jesus dies And I think heaven being torn open here, it's a picture that in the coming of Jesus, heaven and earth, God and humanity are being reunited. The barrier is being bridged as God comes to dwell among us. And the Spirit descends on Jesus as a dove, anointing, empowering him as king. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil, then the Spirit, just as David or Saul were. And the Spirit's presence here makes the event very Trinitarian, doesn't it? One God, three persons. The Father speaks, the Son is baptised, and the Spirit descends on him. God is making sure we know the identity of Jesus. And that sentence that God speaks in verse 11, it's a loaded one. It actually combines three Old Testament quotes. Firstly, God says, you are my son. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's what Mufasa says to Simba. But it actually comes from Psalm chapter 2. It's a famous Old Testament psalm, very important for God's people. It speaks of the nations raging against God. They are united in resisting and rejecting God's rule. And in response, God enthrones a king, verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God enthrones a king, his own son, who will rule the nations, break and crush all the rebellious, all opposition to God. Yet in verse 12, he is an angry God, angry ruler who will crush 
while also being a refuge for all who accept him. Jesus is the son, the king, but he is also the beloved son. It's a reference to Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to take up his only son Isaac as a sacrifice. But the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was widely used at this time, translated that word only as beloved, the same word that is used here by God of Jesus. It's a picture of the intimacy, the closeness between God the Father and his son Jesus. But it also speaks of the unthinkable cost for God to send his beloved son, who unlike Isaac, will not be spared. God's son Jesus, though he is the conquering king of Psalm 2, he's the beloved son that will be a sacrifice. That's what we see in the last part of the quote as God speaks to give us Jesus' identity. He says, with you I am well pleased. That's taken from Isaiah 42. It's one of the four servant songs of Isaiah. And the servant in Isaiah, he is a bit of an enigma. In Psalm 42, we see that this, he is a servant who will be empowered by the Spirit to bring justice to the nations. Kind of sounds like the king of Psalm 2. But this servant is, is humble and, and lowly. Verse 2, he will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. And more than that, as we continue to read Isaiah, we get to 52 and 53 where this servant of God is going to be rejected and die for other people. The servant of Isaiah 53 verse 4 who will bear the burdens of God's people, who will be crushed by God on their behalf, that he will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment on him brings us peace. And while God's Old Testament people knew the promise of the suffering servant and were waiting for him, they never thought that it would be the same person as the conquering king of Psalm 2. That was just unimaginable. Now, we might get it because of the cross where we live this side, we've got more info, but for them it was just beyond comprehension. Yet the king of Psalm 2 who will conquer the nations and end all opposition to God, is the beloved son who will not be spared, but give his life as the suffering servant for the forgiveness of sins and to bring us peace with God. Son, beloved, servant. That is King Jesus. All-powerful yet gentle and approachable. Conquering king, but saves by his own death. And so God himself speaks from heaven in his baptism so that we might benefit to declare to us the identity of King Jesus, which means we don't need to make it up. We don't need to invent or create an identity for Jesus, but to respond to the one that God himself is telling us. And so while we are prone to, prone to bend or twist or repaint Jesus' identity for our own comfort or benefit, the reality of who he is is always better than the idol we make for ourselves. 
And you'll hear it all the time from Christians. It's come up lots during COVID. We are so confident in our understanding of Jesus. You'll hear it. Jesus would never expect me to do that. Jesus would never allow that to happen to me, and so on and so on. So often a Christian's biggest problem is their confidence in their view and version of Jesus. We think we get him, but we have to make sure it's the real Jesus, not the repainting that we've done like Mr. Bean. And so if you know, if you've experienced this in your own life, or especially if you're here tonight and not yet a Christian, sceptical about his claim over your life, then this is an invitation to read on and to test. Ask if his life and ministry that Mark unpacks in the following chapters, is it consistent with what God says about him? Is your view actually consistent with God's declaration and what his life shows? There is nothing better you can do with this new year than to answer that question, especially if you're a Christian already. Because in the final scene in verses 12 to 13, Mark shows us that Jesus really is unique. We go from the heights of his baptism and God's declaration to his testing in the wilderness. And it's a key moment. Here is God's son, God's king, but will he actually be any different from all who have come before him? Verse 12. Immediately the spirit drove him in the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that there's lots familiar about the scene. The number 40 and the wilderness makes us think of Israel, right? Deuteronomy 8, Moses reminds Israel of their experience. He says, remember that the Lord your God led you on your entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. 40 and wilderness, it's all about testing. Israel worshipped the golden calf while Moses is up the mountain 40 days. Nineveh are given 40 days to repent at the preaching of Jonah. Israel are in the wilderness for 40 years and they fail miserably. They grumble and even accuse God of being evil for rescuing them. But then the tempting by Satan and the presence of animals kind of makes us think of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve in the garden. We're being tempted by the lies of the serv- uh, by the serpent came. The scene kind of takes us back to where it all went wrong, where God was rejected, where humanity preferred the lie rather than the truth, and sin and death entered the world. And in amazing brevity, Mark shows us that Jesus really is different. Where both Adam and Israel failed, Jesus is faithful. Driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, tempted by Satan, surrounded by wild animals, Jesus emerges faithful, victorious as the angels are serving him. This shows us that as Jesus comes as king, his work is not going to be primarily political or even social, but spiritual and cosmic. 
For the first time, we have someone truly faithful, truly righteous to God, unblemished by sin. And so Jesus brings with him a world-altering, world-changing difference. Because have you ever thought, why does it matter that Jesus is tested and found faithful? Why couldn't Jesus just show up on Thursday, be crucified Friday, rise on Sunday? Why does it matter that he comes from the wilderness faithful and spends the next three years preaching and ministering? Well, it's because he actually includes us in his success. As he breaks the trend and lives the life that no one else, none of us ever could, he does it for us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that just as the first Adam brought death to all, so Jesus, the last Adam, brings life for all. And so just as Jesus takes the death our sin deserves as the suffering servant of Isaiah, so he also then lives the righteous life we couldn't, which is then given, credited to us as we trust him. He lives the faithful life on our behalf then dies for our unfaithfulness. And so here is the beginning of the beginning of the gospel, the good news, life-giving news of Jesus, the one that our world has actually been waiting and longing for, good news of Jesus who is different and finally breaks the trend. One who is faithful to God and able to set things right. To bring healing, refreshment and freedom to our world as we're going to see in the next few chapters. And so read on. Read on in Mark and get excited. As J.I. Packer says in his great book, Knowing God, there is hope for ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It's the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or will hear. This is the good news uh, our world is searching and longing for. It struck me at the service just before Christmas here at Bundy, Someone came up and prayed that we at Bundy would be a congregation eager to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But what struck me about this was that she went on to pray that we need to be this kind of church, this kind of people, because even if this pandemic passes as we long for, there is always going to be something else. Something that will confront our fragility and our mortality. Something that will have us crying out for relief in this world. And it's relief that Jesus alone brings. And so as we begin a new year, do you want to know this gospel more and more? Do you want to have a clearer and bigger picture of who Jesus really is? Are you eager to enjoy, to know every day, whether you work or study, whatever it is, every day there is a king who rules our world and deeply loves you and is in control of every aspect of your life? 
Because we live in a world, whether you realise it or not, that is always putting up rival gospels, offering or proclaiming to us what will satisfy us, what will make us happy, what's the life that we need or truly deserve. Steve McAlpine in his little book called Being the Bad Guy says it this way, the ambition is to replicate the kingdom vision of the good life, a future world of human rights, dignity, freedom, love and equality, but all without Jesus at the centre. But even Christians can fall into this same trap and same thinking. It will take effort and resolve for us to have the gospel, the real good news at the forefront of every day and shaping all of our thinking. And there is a temptation, I know, when asked to preach on the first Sunday of the year to talk about New Year's resolutions. You know, those 48-minute, at best, 48-hour promises we tend to make with ourselves when we're highly ambitious and optimistic because we haven't gone back to work yet. Now, I don't know how you feel about them, but as we start a new year, however you feel about them, why wouldn't we resolve to have this year be a year where we have the gospel shape all of who we are? To say with the Apostle Paul, who knew plenty, I'm pretty sure, I want to know Christ, yes, and to know the power of his resurrection. Now, I myself, I'm sceptical of any such New Year's resolutions, but John Piper may have persuaded me. He has a little book, a little devotional book called The Godward Life. And as you get to the end of the year, he says this. Christian, Christian resolutions are different from the world's resolutions. We believe that by grace alone, we have been called, that is, captured by the truth and beauty of Christ. We resolve things not to make God be for us, but because he is already for us. That's what his call makes plain. He opens our eyes to see and trust Christ. He shows us in the cross that he is totally for us. All of our resolves are to walk more worthy of this calling in ways more fitting for the beneficiaries of such free grace. If Jesus is the king that we need the king whose life and mission really is good news, life-bringing, life-changing good news, shouldn't we resolve to not just be familiar with him but to have all of life revolve around him, to be captured again and again by the wonder of his life, death and resurrection? As Tim Keller says, religious people find God useful, Christians find God beautiful. So let's start a new year resolved to make much of Jesus, to have him at the centre of every day, to see the world through the lens of who our king is, what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. And let's do it not as a burden, not as duty, not even as Christian obligation, but as the joyful pursuit to see and savour the Lord Jesus as he actually is. Not useful, but wonderful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Good news that is true, historical, 
life-giving, just as you promised. We thank you for our King Jesus, the beloved Son, the suffering servant. Please capture us again with this gospel of Jesus Christ and make it our aim, make it our joy to know, trust, enjoy and live for him each day and to do so more and more. We ask for our good and your glory. Amen.